Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Can we help talk about sausage making here so we can give a vignette to our ginormous 7 a.m. audience worldwide? Can, can you explain what you're talking what about? Happens? We get so busy, John and I, and Johnny has three Bloomberg terminals, but there I was on television this morning, and you know I'm frantically dealing with yields and the yields lower in Europe. And I don't even know who sits down next to me. So I, of course, look into the TV camera and go, and with us, Christopher Verone. And Dr. Ari was 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 sitting you, next to me. Are you a little bit confused this morning? I was a little bit confused. He leans over to me and says, you'd never do that to Ellen Zettner. Let's bring in Chetanaya, shall we? Morgan Stanley's chief economist and global and head. I apologize again, doctor. Good morning to you, Chetan. Great to have you with us on the program. My pleasure. Let's just talk about it. The headline in your latest research piece, Policy Dominates the Cycle. We're trying to get our hands around the next policy move from China. How do you frame that at the moment? Well, we think China is uh, right now already implementing quite a sizable fiscal stimulus. That's about $250 billion in size. And if this trade tension thing escalates, we think they'll probably do additional fiscal stimulus. And this time, the fiscal stimulus will actually be more focused on public expenditure. What we saw the last round was a mix of tax cuts and public expenditure. But if state tensions escalate, they'll probably not do more tax cuts. They'll do more fiscal stimulus in form of spending. Why more focus on the public sector? Because, you know, what had happened, and a lot of people ask me, you know, did China always plan to extend these trade tensions uh, for longer? My immediate answer and first impression is no, because, you know, they actually, this time, very much focused on the private sector, tried to do these tax cuts which supports the private sector. But now these trade tensions, if it escalates, it actually affects the confidence. And so people will save that tax cuts and not spend. And so if you see that trade tensions are escalating and you want that growth number to look up, they'll actually have to take control and do the traditional style, more public expenditure. So many people are trying to understand whether China is pushing on a string at the moment. And I'm wondering if you can draw any kind of distinction between the debt cycle in the public sector and the debt cycle in the private sector. Are we seeing two different tracks here, two different things happening? Well, actually, you know, in China's case, um, you know, because there's so much of public sector in every part of the economy, when you're looking at debt sustainability, you just look at the overall debt to GDP. And they actually did have a control on that. In 2018, total debt to GDP declined by five percentage points. Corporate debt to GDP declined by eight percentage points. So they were actually able to achieve some success towards that. But I agree, if you do see trade tensions in another round of stimulus, you will see some compromise and debt to GDP will rise somewhat in 2019. The Morgan Stanley global call on slower GDP, a tendency to lower yields has been extraordinary, almost a synthesis of what you and and Ellen Zettner and others have done there. Bring that over to what everybody knows on the street is your cautious equity call as well. Can you ever more with the news flow of the last two weeks link in an equity market caution to a, I see a U.S. two-year at 2.17%? Yeah, essentially the call from the um, equity side and fixed income strategy side is that you know even while we have some kind of stabilization in global growth, the reality is with these trade tensions, the risk to the outlook are skewed to the downside. And so what they think is that the market is going to price off this downside risk, and that's why they are cautious on the markets. 
they're cautious on the markets and you have to be cautious on a slowdown. Is the Fed aware of how quickly we're moving towards a rate cut call? Well, I think as of now, things are fine. And I think the Fed is in the right place. I wouldn't say that they are actually behind the curve and not observing this uh, downside. I think they will come through very quickly. If you see this trade tensions escalating for longer, and it shows up in the financial conditions um, index. So our, our view is that as of now, it's fine, but if financial conditions tighten, the Fed will come through very quickly. Jen, we've got to work out the external inter internal forces affecting some of these economies. And I want to focus specifically on China. It's been quite hard to draw a distinction between what China engineered themselves, the slowdown we have seen over the last year, and the slowdown off the back of the trade dispute between the United States. How do you draw that distinction at the moment? Well, I actually have been different from consensus as its consensus has been saying that China's slowdown was because they were doing tightening. So I don't think it was a policy-driven slowdown which they enforced on themselves. It was more really trade tensions that was the biggest problem for China's uh, growth outlook in the second half of 2018. Let me explain what I mean. So if you see the credit growth, which is the most important policy variable we watch, it was slowing already from middle of 2016, from year-on-year -year number of 16% to 12%. And in those six quarters until second first half of 2018, its GDP growth was fine, 67 6.8% year-on-year. So the only time you saw that slowdown was in the second half once trade tensions escalated. So we think the private sector confidence took a serious hit, not just only in China, but everywhere in the world. And so it was really trade tensions that has caused the big slowdown. So Chetan, this is really important because China's credit impulse is just starting to inflect up again. The provision of credit as a percentage of GDP just starting to inflect higher. And some people look at that as a leading indicator for the economy. Are you saying it's not this time around? Well, it is, but to the extent to which you, if you don't get trade tensions solved, then that credit growth recovery will still not bring net-net recovery in China's GDP growth. So as I was explaining to Tom earlier on the TV show, that there are two forces at play here, policy stimulus and trade tensions. Which one wins depends right. upon the duration of how long the trade tension lasts. If trade tensions last for longer, then we think policy stimulus will increase, but even that will not be enough to actually drive a recovery and, and, in China. And you went right where John Williams was in our conversation with him from Zurich, I think it was 24 hours ago, uh, which is a loss of business confidence. Is Morgan Stanley observing right now a lessening confidence, which means less investment, less animal spirit among business? Absolutely. That's exactly what is going on right now in the CapEx numbers that we see. So for, for me... We I, saw that in Germany today, John. And us. if you look at another transparent indicator, which is you aggregate global capital goods import from the trade data that you get, and that's contracting on a year-on-year -year basis in the first three months of the calendar year. It's down 3% year-on-year versus 21% growth about okay, from plus back. 21 to negative three, what does that do to a, a Lagarde-like global GDP number? Do we go back to a three-handle on yeah. global GDP? We, we are expecting global growth to be 3.2% oh, in the first man. quarter, Before, down from 4%. Let me translate back. that, folks. That's low. That's not correct. 3.2 is not 3.8. Final question for you, Chelan. Mm. How they manage the FX channel in China? We've seen Good some question. weakness come through. Is that weakness engineered? or largely out of their control? I think it is more market-oriented at this point of time. I don't see a case for China to actually use this as a tool, as a you know point to d discuss or debate on this trade tension. So we think it is pretty much market-oriented. Look, they don't run big current account surpluses now. 
So when you get this sort of market declines, you will see capital outflows, portfolio outflows, and that's going to drive some currency weakness. So we think it is just that right now. It's the outlook on uh, capital flows. Chetanaya, thank you so much. He is with Great Morgan to see Stanley, you. head of global economics. And thank you and to all your team who are with us uh, almost on a daily basis, it seems. Morgan Stanley, uh, with I, I will suggest as a summary, a more cautious call. John, it's, it's just exceptionally important to understand that the Washington Capitals lost, so we really don't care what Abby Joseph Cohen thinks. And so we need to have somebody here who understands we are destined for Bruins, Blues, Stanley Cup final. Is this, this baseball? Is where, no, this, yeah. This is Glenn Hall and goal, and a guy named Orr goes across the top. And only our next guest understands the importance a Bruins real, victory. Real Bruins just, just killed the Canes yeah. last night. It was such a big game. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it took, it took a Raska just You honestly, have no idea what you're honestly, talking about, Just fantastic. <laughs> Tuka did okay, huh? <laughs> Great player. What are you reading off? <laughs> Do you like that? Do you like my baseball that knowledge? That was sort of like me doing Liverpool. <laughs> Wait, I'm, joking. I'm really joking. joking. I'm so good at winding you up, honestly. Ice hockey in Boston. I get it. All Which right. means we can only talk to one gentleman from Goldman Sachs. David Costin, Goldman Sachs, is chief U.S. equity strategist. Did you think we'd open a conversation like that, David? Uh, no, but uh, nothing here surprises me. <laughs> is, that, is that an insult at me or at Tom? I think it's a group effort. Is that a group effort? <laughs> a group effort. David, let's talk about something that I think is dominating the conversation, and I know you and the team have been focused on it too, input costs and how they're managed as the year grows older. Just walk me through some of the conclusions you've come to and some of the research you and the guys, the team have been doing. Well, one of the biggest topics in the investment community right now is the rising input costs. Now, tariffs are the top of mind, but there are other aspects of the cost structure of corporations, one of which would be labor costs. Uh, and so from a social point of view, that is a good thing, people making more money. From a margin pressure, however, that's uh, the downward uh, squeeze on some margins. That's the one particular aspect that we're focused on a lot. You look at the typical company, uh, something on the order of 14% of its sales are devoted to the cost of labor. Uh, that's fully loaded. You think about uh, healthcare costs, medical benefits, their salary, their compensation, all that's about 14% of sales. And so there are some companies where that's at the low end, maybe 5%, and there are other companies where it's the high end, something like 25 or 30% of the revenues are consumed by, uh, by labor. So I would say that's uh, sort of front and center. The tariffs are just a complicating factor uh, or another attribute of that. So as an investor, you want to think about it, those companies that are goods producing as compared with service providing. And if you have a, an option, or not option, but if you uh, would want to tilt a portfolio more towards companies that are services providing because they have less uh, exposure on the, on the labor cost side, they have more uh, stronger, less variable margins, they have better balance sheets, and most importantly, they are not going to be subject to tariffs. Or when I say not subject to, they're much less affected by, uh, by tariffs, both the actual tariffs as well as potential retaliatory tariffs on the part of China. And when you separate it up that way, service providing versus good producing, do you also find that the service providing companies are able to pass those costs on 
instead of absorbing it through the margin. Is that what you're finding too? Yes. And if you want to think about uh, some of the companies that are in the industry, the industries that are uh, that are more uh, representative in the services categories, you look at software and services, media, entertainment, retailing, banks uh, would be examples of service providing companies. And the goods producing sides, you'll see that in pharma. You look at that capital goods, technology, energy, those would be on the other side. And they have more uh, downward pressure on the, in their business model simply because they're more goods producing. If you're looking at uh, another way of thinking about it, 80% of the revenues of services companies are domestic, whereas the goods providing is right. something like 50-50. And so that's a 50% you know, in non-US, which, which is another challenge on the tariff side. Could they cut their way out of this? I mean, I have heard about margin compression since Nixon was president, and you know, maybe it was before that. Well, that was around the time that Bobby Orr, uh, that Bobby Orr scored that great goal you were referring to. <laughs> Very is Robert Orr in this studio. I can sir. see where this conversation's <clears throat> going. See, this is great. You're like going, we got to get Ovechkin back with Abby. Really, the perfect guest okay. for you. It is. Thank you, um, David. Uh, we've been talking about margin compression for years. It's finally here. You claim what's different this time. What's different now. And why can't an industrial shop in the Midwest cut costs like they've always cut costs? Well, the biggest issue is uh, on a positive point, we're 3.6% unemployment rate, the lowest yeah. in 50 years, uh, which, which is a uh, positive from a social point of view, but it does put upward pressure on, uh, on wages. Does Jan Hatzius agree with this? Is, is Hatzius's vector on wage growth higher? My colleague Jan Hatzius is our chief economist at Goldman Sachs, is uh, also of the view, and his forecast would be that uh, wage inflation is accelerating. Uh, and if you look at the quarterly conference calls, right, we just finished the quarterly conference right. calls in uh, in the first quarter results, and companies yeah. were enumerating and discussing the, uh, the labor costs. And this goes back to Chairman Paul. I did the chart, John, while we were on the break talking Charts about Blues Bruins. Nice. No, Blues Bruins. We were doing it. And if you take trimmed mean like Cleveland mean, yeah. I'm sorry, these are higher inflation numbers than a lot of the stuff that's being quoted. David, can we talk about where consumer staples fit in here? Because some of the big consumer staples companies actually were quite successful at passing through higher costs to the end consumer, lifting prices and actually getting some revenue growth as well. Where do they fit into all of this? Uh, the consumer staples area is certainly more exposed than uh, a lot of others in, in, in our view and our research. And so the preference would be to tilt portfolios more towards technology, particularly software. And if you think about uh, the fact of the last 50 years, so remember we're at the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. If you think about over the last uh, five decades, only one year have you had negative growth in real spending on software in this country. One time in 50 years. And that is that took place right after uh, the 2001, right after the tech bubble collapsed. Other than that, real spending on software in this country has increased for, uh, for five decades. And so that would be an area, very strong revenue story behind it. And they're able to absorb uh, the increased labor costs. This is one of those secular growth stories. Is right. that essentially what you're saying? Well, secular growth stories also for concerned about the what impact tariffs may have on the, the business models of a uh, number of companies in terms of their, their cost structure. Some yeah. companies are trying to diversify their supply chains. That's one uh, tactic to combat the potential risk of tariffs. Also addressing the issue of higher input costs. That's, uh, that's the, the strategy we're, we're focused on. Uh, let's get back to the index level just quickly as we round out the interview. The work calls for an earnings recession in the United States. Have we seen the worst? Was Q1 the worst? And can we avoid that, David? 
Well, the earnings recession basically had uh, positive 2% earnings per share growth for the, the first quarter year over year. Uh, expectation is you'll have modest growth this year of somewhere between 3 and 6% positive earnings growth uh, in 2019. Yeah. And that's reflective of the fact that you're going to be somewhere between $168 and $173 of earnings per share for the S&P 500. That would lead us to an index right. level at the end of the year of around 3000 How does David Costin define scale? Every C-class officer now, we have to find scale. Scale this, scale that. Is, is it a roll-up frenzy that we're going into? Well, scale does offer the prospect of better margins. And since exactly. the big topic of, uh, of on the investment community right now yeah. is which companies or which industries are able to right. increase those uh, those margins. A lot of, as we yeah. talked about this morning, so many companies are having downward pressure on their uh, their margins. David Costin with us with Goldman Sachs. This oh, was, was a surprise. Was I was very good? happy with David just dropping by the studio. Well, like I was this. shooting a video there. What I was doing was shooting Mr. Costin. You were just annoying me. That's what you were and doing. Come, no, no. And then I came over you, and then with, with the video camera that we've got it's the same thing they use in game of thrones i went through you and over you just like robert Orr going over glenn hall you know how you feel it's very bruins blues. when the youngest is running around the apartment driving you crazy yeah that's, the way that's it is how here. i feel every morning doing radio that's how you. much fun it is john Joining us now is Bloomberg Brexit editor Emma Ross Thomas. Emma, so the, the timing is awkward, right, for the Conservative Party because so she says she's going to bring this back uh, to Parliament in June. Ahead of that, we have the European elections. How will the Conservative do, and how will Labour do? Well, I think the timing actually is almost in her favour. She's, she's one of the the good things about the European elections, if you like, if you want to seek a silver lining, is that the Tories are almost certainly going to get wiped out by uh, the Brexit Party founded by Nigel Farage, the veteran. Brexit campaigner. He's polling at about 34%. The Tories in some polls are down at 10%, coming in sort of fourth or fifth place. So um, Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, said yesterday that maybe if they get a real drubbing, that that will send a message to his colleagues to just jolly well deliver Brexit. So that does seem to be the the sort of the, the main hope, if you like, is that um, the, the message from those elections will be, you've got to get on with it, deliver Brexit, start talking about something else. Um, and the, certainly inside the Tory party, there's a view that the Brexit party is an existential threat to the Tories if they don't deliver Brexit. If they do deliver right. Brexit, then they can, then they can live but with it. But if, if the Brexit party, which frankly mm. is just very clear what you're voting for, which is Brexit, mm. if they win big in the European elections, does it not give impetus to, for example, a Conservative party, you know, possible leader that is that is pro-Brexit to say, actually, Theresa May, move out of the way. We don't even like this deal. We want something much stronger in our divorce deal with the EU. Yeah, I think it's very likely that the, the next step, if you like, is certainly the, a leadership race. Theresa May's deal probably, I mean, I'm not going to put numbers on it, but it's not very likely that it goes through. It's not very, you know, people have become increasingly entrenched over in their positions over the last three years. Um, you know, I suppose the when I say that about the European elections, that's kind of the only hope, if you like. Or, of course, that she does actually offer the Labour Party what they want, which is a customs union and also a confirmatory vote. Again, very unlikely, and it would, you know, she would end up being killed by her party. So, looking ahead to a leadership uh, race, yes, probably a Brexiteer is going to is going to win that race. Um, but then he, he is stuck, or he or she is stuck with. The same so, parliament, yeah. a parliament that has voted repeatedly against no deal. And so, you know, it's not too hard to, to imagine that beyond that leadership race, you're then looking at a general election if they are going to want to renegotiate that deal. Emma, thank you so much.
This morning, we'd like to have a three-hour discussion with a laureate, Michael Spence of New York University. We can unfortunately not get you for three hours, but we could fill it uh, effortlessly at well. We might point out that we celebrate with uh, Professor Spence his new uh, efforts as a special advisor to General Atlantic, which is, I know, uh, an investment shop that is always pushing the information and education uh, envelope. Michael Spence, what a day it was when you won the the, uh, Nobel Prize sharing it with the gentleman from Stanford, and there's only one, George Akerlof. I think Professor Taylor would agree with that uh, statement. And a guy named Stiglitz from Columbia as well. And so much of Spence, Stiglitz, Akerlof was what we don't see out there. Right. What are we not seeing right now in the information flow of our brand spanking new trade war? Well, I think we're, we're confused, Tom. Uh, and we're refused, confused mainly because we can't see what the objective function of the current administration in the United States is. And we have similar difficulties figuring out where, where the Chinese want to end up. So, for example, it's, there's a group in Washington that would like to decouple our economies. There's a group that's concerned with national security and defense and related things, and they might be sympathetic to the decoupling and a little insensitive to the economic costs of that. And then there's another rather large group, bipartisan group, who think, you know, that the thing hasn't been fair. We've got to level a playing field, and otherwise we can have normal economic relationships. And what we can't see, I don't think it's possible to see now, mm-hmm. is sort of where we're going to end up on that spectrum. Let's fold in Michael Spence with Jonathan Spence of Yale University. And, of course, uh, no relation, right? No relation. No relation. Uh, but with the giant Jonathan Spence, a true scholar, or original scholar, some would say, on China. Uh, if we fold in the two Spences, the mystery is how do the Chinese respond, and do they respond culturally and behaviorally or rationally and economically? Which will it be? That's part of the uncertainty. That is part, part of what we don't know. So we think we, 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 Jonathan and others who spend a lot of time in China think they're, as, as is true in every country, groups. So there's a group that want the state to be a major part of the economy, and that creates clashes with interactions with our system. Um, there's a group that, that wants reform and would be quite happy with some of the things that are being proposed and bandied about in the trade and it's not clear, you know, how that balance is going to come out. I, I mean, it's pre- what it, one thing is pretty clear is the old assumption that they would evolve and become more like a Western economy in terms of governance, the role of the state, mm-hmm. and so on. That's not going to happen, at least not in the near future. Um, but there are great uncertainties. There's the... Um, I sometimes say the Chinese have gravitated from correct behavior, which was what mm-hmm. the anti-corruption campaign was about, to correct thought. There's more uh, willingness to intervene and prevent people from expressing diverse yeah. views on things. So, oh. Professor, from your perspective, what do you think is a reasonable deal at the end of the day, given your, not your understanding of the limitations on the Chinese government and what they can do, and given certainly our political limitations here? Well, I think a a reasonable deal is to pick off the stuff that's relatively easy. The Chinese, in order to achieve economic performance, do not need to have theft of intellectual property. They don't need um, significant degrees of protection. And I don't think they need, for the most part, 
um, to protect uh, state-owned enterprises and other parts of that as apparatus. So I think that, you know, if we can get over this, you know, you get to lower your tariffs and we get to keep ours or the right to keep ours kind of back and forth that we're seeing now, I think there's a reasonable deal in that area. Now, what what all insightful commentators say is that's not the whole story, that we'll still have frictions around the way technology moves around the world and between the two countries and so on. But but there is a deal to be struck that's mutually beneficial in that area. So it's interesting. The uh, One of the issues seems to be uh, enforcement. That has always been a major issue here. Are, is there any room for breakthrough and actually getting real enforcement of whatever is agreed to? Well, I, for, for the enforcement issue comes from a long history of China agreeing to terms uh, and then sort of ignoring them when it was inconvenient, uh, going back to the WTO accession. I think the Chinese realize that's not a long-run productive way to interact anymore. Um, so I, 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 my best guess is the way this is going to go is there aren't really hugely reliable enforcement mechanisms, but both sides are going to reserve the right to react in, in, to misbehavior on the, on the other side. I've got to rip up the script. And, and go somewhere where I think it's surprising we would go. Many of you may not know, if you're just joining us, Michael Spence with us, uh, the laureate of New York University and had a nodding acquaintance with how to get from Palo Alto to the airport a few uh, years ago. At Stanford, you arguably invented modern graduate school thought-provoking academics out at Stanford a million years ago. I, I would be honored to know your thoughts on people spending a kajillion dollars to get their kid as a fake sailor or fake tennis player or a fake whatever into these elite schools. How did you respond when you saw what parents would do to get their kids on the undergraduate gravy train of many of our, our most Spencean uh, institutions? Well, my, my response was, I suspect, the same one that most Americans had, which is completely inappropriate behavior. What um, do we do with athletics at these schools? I mean, the heart of the matter is athletics was the vehicle, the catalyst for this, this behavioral function of desperate parents. Well, it was certainly the vehicle for, for it, it was, so it's a, you think of it as a vulnerability in the admissions, pro, in the integrity of the admissions Correct. process, Tom. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, um, the universities and colleges in the United States, a vast group of very great institutions, will move to close those vulnerabilities. Well, Stanford moved immediately. I mean, you know, full disclosure for Stanford, they moved at light speed. No, that's true. But they, the, the, the secondary effort needs to be to introduce sort of um, monitoring and control systems so it doesn't happen again. They, we, did, they did move right away. Can we also have an understanding, Professor Spence, that there's a select number of a jillion schools out there? that can provide exquisite educations away from the 30 select schools? Yeah, I, that's I mean, my view of American my, education. My grandfather called it Harvard on the brain. You know, that's what, you know, if my kid right. doesn't go to Harvard, you know, I mean, Gates and Balmer were, your, were in your graduate class. They didn't even show up to class, did they? Not very much. Um, <laughs> but they did rather well in the course. That's, a, that's, a, that's at the, tail, the right tail of the distribution in terms of brain power. How do we get say. ourselves away from this pressure to send our kids to seven schools that you know, are deemed correct? 
Yeah, no, I, I think this is very important. Um, my answer to that is I view the great strength of American higher education as the, as, as the size of the really top flight institutions, and I don't mean the 30, I mean the, the 300, yeah. 500, and they are state schools yeah. as well as colleges, yeah. teaching colleges and so on. I think part of the answer is we just keep repeating it. And, and Thank tell, you. And, Thank tell, you. and telling stories. I mean, there's lots of successful people, you know, who, who didn't go to Harvard and Yale and Stanford and right. et cetera. Uh, and, and so I think we well, just got to get the message out. I, I like your effort of saying keep telling it in a major shout out to Jonathan Cole of Columbia University, who is just truly definitive on this. Michael Spence, thank you so much. Lord of New York University uh, there on Trade Wars. And we'd like to get you back in to finish up the three-hour conversation at I, some point. I'd be delighted to. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.